0: Banff is a funny place. Uh, We haven't lived here yet for a full year, so this uh, this was our first fall experience, and it was unbelievably beautiful for at least four days. And I don't know what we signed up for, but it seems like winter is here for a long time. But Dusty told me it'll go away by Tuesday, so if it doesn't, we'll blame him. Uh, welcome here if you're visiting. Uh, sometimes this happens in Banff where our people are away, and it always seems to not matter attendance-wise, there's always a lot of visitors. So who's visiting this morning? It's got to be over 50%. So that's that's exciting. Welcome here. I, I hope you are encouraged. I hope you're challenged uh, through as we re- read through the Word. I hope you grow in your faith. Uh, not through anything that I have to say, because I'm not smart enough to do that, but the Word of God can do that and can change our hearts and our minds. So if you want to flip to 1 Peter chapter 2, and while you're turning there, just let me catch you up in what's happened the last couple of weeks here. So Peter has started writing this book, and he's, he's writing it to the elect exiles. Uh, and that word exiles is used differently here in Peter than elsewhere in Scripture. What he's trying to get them to understand here is that this world is not our home. This is not what our purpose is meant for, at least not in a big picture setting, is our purpose is meant to be with God in heaven for eternity. And we are to live in a way that we are reminded of that, so that that changes how we live practically here on the earth and what we do. And so Peter's writing to them to say, you are, uh, you are bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus. And, and the good news about what Peter says in the first few verses of chapter 1 is he's trying to remind us that salvation is a gift from God and it's not of us. And so he holds us and he keeps us and he will not let us go. And, and we talked quite a bit at length a couple of weeks ago just about how encouraging that is to know that there's nothing that I can do where God will turn and say, no, you've done too much but that God holds me, that God's promises to me are that he will hold on to me until the end. And so salvation is secure, not because of what I can do, not because I can obey enough or I can do enough good things, but salvation is secure because Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins and for your sins. And so what a blessing that is. What that should do is two things. is one that should take any pressure off of us in this idea that we have to earn it. We have to live good enough lives. We have to find the sense of well, if I do enough good things it will outweigh my bad things and somehow then God will forgive me. It eliminates all of that because the work has already been done by Jesus Christ. All we're doing is submitting to him in that. And we're saying, Jesus, you alone, you alone have saved me. And then the other thing that does is it, it should give us a sense of purpose and meaning for the world here because not only have we been saved, but we haven't just been raptured straight to heaven upon salvation, but God has called us now to go into the world that we find ourselves in and to minister to those who are in need and, and to share the gospel with those who need it. And so that is a very encouraging thing. Uh, then in the last bit of chapter one, it, it kind of changes and Peter starts talking about um, He starts the text in in verse 13 of chapter one by saying, prepare your minds for action. And we talked about how we have to mentally prepare ourselves to do the things that God has called us to do. But not only that, we've also got to prepare ourselves for the challenges and the hardships that are going to be coming our way. And Peter talked about this in chapter one, and he's going to continue basically throughout this entire book is to say there can be hope in the midst of pain and hurt, hope in the midst of fear, hope in the midst of suffering is all of us go through challenge all through, all of us go through difficulty and to prepare ourselves for those things that are going to come peter says is necessary because i don't know about you guys but if you're anything like me is when you walk into a situation completely unprepared for it it catches you off guard and you say or do things that you probably wouldn't have said or done had you thought it through and had you been prepared And then Peter gives us three commands that we are to do. He says, first, to set your mind on the hope uh, of the second coming of Christ. So in other words, there's a timeline here. Is that Jesus is coming back and we can set our hope on that day. It hasn't happened yet, but we can know it because God has promised it in his word to us. And so we're going to set our hope in that. He's told us to be holy as he is holy. and, And we spent quite a bit of time last week talking about how do you be holy? How do you be completely set apart the way that God is? And the conclusion to that part was basically this, is we have been given the Holy Spirit. And so we are no longer slaves to sin, as we just sang. It n- no longer holds any mastery over us. But that now we can find victory over sin through the Holy Spirit. And when we submit to him, we are standing apart from who we were into now who we are. And that's what Peter's going to continue this morning. And then lastly, he's reminded us to love each other with brotherly love. And and the challenge given to us as a church is that the world should see us, look at the church and go, the love that they have for one another is, is something that I just can't even understand and I need it because it's so good. We are to care for one another in such a strong way. When you look at... the. Acts chapter 2, in the beginnings of the early churches, when there were needs, other people in the church gathered together, They, they figured out a way, whether they sold their field or whether they gathered together, they figured out a way to meet the needs of every brother and sister that they had because of the love that they had for one another. The world should look at us as Christians and be shocked at the commitment that we have for one another, despite the differences that we have despite some of the theological differences we have, despite some of the denominational differences we have, we should love one another the way that Christ loved the church. And this brings us to chapter 2. So let's read chapter 2, verses 1 to 12 here. I'm reading from the ESV. Peter says this, So put away all malice, all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you would not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against you. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day a visitation. So Peter is going to go back into a little bit of what he talked about at the end of chapter one, but he's dealing with the context of identity. It's all through this text. It just screams this language of identity where Peter's saying, here's who you were, but you're no longer that. Now, rather, here's who you are. And here's how you should live. You shouldn't do this anymore because you were bought and paid for by Jesus Christ's blood. You've received his Holy Spirit. And so now, who's here you are? This is who your identity is in. So let me just ask you this question. Is, if you were asked by somebody, what is your identity rooted in? Or, or who is your identity rooted in? Is What are the things that kind of go through your mind? I've had the opportunity several times to be in a unique environment where I didn't know anybody and I got to ask uh, some questions about them. And what I've learned over the years is that most people tie their identity not in who they are rather, but in what they do defines who they are. So if they have a strong and successful career, they'll say, this is who I am, and this is what I'm good at. If they have uh, a strong athletic prowess, they'll say, well, this kind of is who I am. Or if they're into music, they'll say, well, this kind of defines me. And what I'm going to argue with and we're going to show in Scripture is that, is that I think that's a backwards way of looking at identity. Identity should never be placed in our abilities and our skills, and so that becomes who we are. Rather, who we are should be Flowing out of who our identity is placed in a child of God loved by the creator of the universe and so what we think about him should define how we think about ourselves and so it should flip there from one to the other now it's not wrong to place parts of our identity in the things that we do because that's the way that God has created us and that's the way that God skilled us and and that's okay Uh, But there are certain things in our culture now that are kind of hijacking identity, and we're starting to say that our soul, everything about us is in this one thing. And so there are different areas in our culture now where that's being fought. And one of those uh, issues is is human sexuality. Is we look at that and we say, I identify as this, and so now this is where my identity is placed in, and everything that we... The rest of how they interpret the world filters through that one part. And scripture teaches sexuality is a beautiful thing and a wonderful thing, but it teaches that it's just one part of us. And I think sometimes we've allowed culture to hijack our, our very view of what identity means. And rather than looking at it and going, well, this is me, we need to take it back and go, this is Christ. I'm a child of his. Every other bit of that is just parts of my identity all coming under surrender to who Jesus Christ is. 2 Corinthians 5.17, and I quoted this a couple weeks ago, but Paul says this to us. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so what you can see in there is, is, is an imagery of before and after, but it's not just in the sense of, of slow growth. It's radical change is what Paul's talking about. In our young adult Bible study, uh, which takes place Tuesdays just across the parking lot at our place, um, uh, Phil actually was tasked with teaching Ephesians chapter 2, the beginning of it. Uh, and And he did a, a fantastic job walking us through that. But One of the things that he focused on was right in verse 1, Paul says this You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And he focused really hard on this idea, this imagery of being dead, because sometimes we view it as we're the one that reached up to God to ask for help. But what scripture teaches is that we couldn't even do that, but that God reached down to us. And as we walk through that passage in 1st into verse five, we found that we were dead, but now we have been made alive with Christ. And so all through scripture is this language of identity, is this language of here's who you were, but that is done with, it's gone, it's dead. You are now alive, and you are alive in this context, in the blood of Jesus Christ. And so for us to, to look back into our lives, we should see radical change happening. Now, now, sometimes it maybe doesn't feel radical in the moment, in the day-to-day. Sometimes it feels painfully slow. But hopefully as we look back into our, the past of our lives, we can see, man, that's who I was. I can't even identify with that person anymore. Christ has changed me so drastically. The way that I think and how I think and the things that I even think about have been so radically shifted under who I am as a child of God rather than who I was before. So Peter said this at the end of chapter one. He reminds us again. So put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, all envy, all slander. And then he uses this imagery of being born again. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So what he's saying is, is if you have tasted that the Lord is good, you should be growing up into salvation. That doesn't mean that salvation is a progressive thing that has to happen. Our sanctification is progressive as God continues to make us more and more holy by the power of the Spirit, but salvation is a thing that happened when Jesus died on the cross for us, and if we surrender to him, if we make him Lord of our life, we are bought and paid for. That's finished. But what he's saying is there's a maturation that has to happen. So what, what is this pure spiritual milk? What is this thing that we should be longing for? Well, Peter implies it here, and he's going to clarify this as we move forward, but it's simply this, is it's the word of God. The very way in which we grow in our understanding of who God is, is found in this book. And this book is so readily available to us that there's no excuse for us not to have it. The problem is we live at a time uh, where we want everything easy and quick and fast. And we don't really want to have to work for things and we don't want to have to put in the effort that it takes. And sometimes when we read through Scripture and when we study it, we go, I don't really understand that. That was difficult. Uh, I don't have some context. Uh, I need help. But I, uh, and we move on. And we go off to something else because it's a little bit easier. Or what we found to, to be true in the North American church is that rather than go to here, we go to people and we ask them to say, tell me your experience about what God's done. And there's nothing wrong with experiences, but when we box God into experience and we say, this is how God works because I saw it happen in the life of this person, then we're saying to God, I don't really actually want to do the homework necessary to figure out who you are, I just, I just want to know part of you. The word of God is the very thing that will challenge us, that will change us, and this is why on Sunday mornings we just take a text and we just work our way through it. Because this is how we're going to know who God is. This is how our relationship with God is going to continue to grow and grow. Then he says this in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone. Now that living imagery has been brought several times. The beginning of, uh, first, uh, of chapter 1 in verse 3, he says a living hope. And then later on in, in verse 23, he says uh, a living the living word. And then now he says living stones. But notice Later on, he's going to say a comparison for us in verse five, that we ourselves are like living stones and being built up? Is it's Peter's trying to make this abundantly clear that we don't serve a God that died? We serve a resurrected Lord who is alive, and he cannot stop reminding us of that because it's so crucial for us to grasp that he is not dead, that he is active, that he is alive, that he is involved in the day-to-day of our lives. And that is a huge comfort. And and something that, that is unique to Christianity is that we have a God that walks with us, that hurts with us, that journeys through pain and sorrow and triumph and joy, and he is there with us at all times. And what a promise that is to us. But notice again the identity language in that. As you have come to him, a li- sorry, as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So he's saying Christ was rejected by men. You have embraced him. And so because of that, you have become living stones. But notice the implication the same thing is going to happen to us. And Peter's reminded us of that already, and he's going to continue to remind us of that, especially in the context of government and submitting to people that that have a different worldview than us. We are going to go through hardship. We are going to go through difficulty. We are going to be rejected by some. And again, that's why we have to prepare our minds for action. Because if we're prepared for opposition and we're prepared for obstacle, like Paul says, put on the full armor of God, go into battle ready for what you're about to face. And that's so important for us to do because if we don't, we are going to be fighting a losing battle because we aren't going to be prepared and we aren't going to be ready. He talks about this idea in verse 5. You yourselves, like living souls, are being built up as a spiritual house. A couple of things to note there. You are being built up implies who's doing the work. God. You are being built up. He doesn't say build yourselves up. It says that in some other places in Scripture in a different context. But here he's talking about this specific, this idea of salvation. You are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So what he's saying is is not that he's building a, a location, he's not building a physical church, he's building the church in this concept that we all identify under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That all of us together are in one family together. One purpose, one mission, under Jesus Christ. Here's the challenge, is being one family under one roof sometimes can get a little crowded. It can get a little messy. I was talking to Lori, and she said she had a 100 people in her house at a, at a doctor's thing or majinger that I don't fully understand. But 100 people in your house, that's exhausting, I'm sure. I can't speak to that. Lori, was that exhausting? Yes, right? Is when everyone's under our house and we're trying to govern and we're trying to rule, man, just how many of you, Parents have had more than one kid. It doesn't even take more than one kid for a kid to fight with themselves, right? But like things get messy. Your sibling relationships, how many of you have siblings? It's always been smooth, right? Never a problem with your siblings. Man, like siblings are the best and they are the worst, right? Is we love them and we love them to the nth degree, but on the other side of things, sometimes we just want to strangle them. Metaphorically. Just for the record but this is the reality of family and this is this is the thing this is why it can be hard to love each other the way that Christ called us to love each other is because sometimes we don't really like each other that sounds awful my mom used to say this to me all the time Greg you don't have to like your brother but you have to love him I never really understood that until you know as you get older and you start to have kids and some of those things happen is we have different personalities we have different priorities. Some of us have very different gifts than other people and we don't understand each other the same. And and the old example is is the, the the prayer warriors gather together and they just pray and then the doers gather over here and they don't pray, rather they just do, and the doers don't understand why the prayers don't do and the doers and the prayers don't understand. You know what I mean? That was very confusing. But you have two people that just view things philosophically different. And so how do you come together under the Lordship of Christ? and to not try to domineer or take leadership over somebody else, but to work as a family. The only way to do that is by surrendering and putting Christ as the head. And that's what he's calling us to do here. We are a spiritual house. And we're going to go back to this idea of, of royal or of holy priesthood because this is, this is important. But verses 7 and verses 8 get a little bit uh, difficult, and, and I want to clarify this for us a little bit. So the honor is for you who believe... But for those who do not believe, the stone has become or the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, so Isaiah referencing Christ here, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So right there, okay, no problem is, for those that have accepted Christ as Lord, they understand the goodness of Christ. Right? Another passage in the Bible says it's foolishness to those who are perishing, right? They don't, they don't get it. And so the blessings aren't available to them. So we can understand that. But then at the end of verse eight, it says they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And that's a hard verse. Is, is it sounds like what God is saying is that he's chosen some people and he's deliberately not chosen others. And that can be a huge point of conflict in our own understanding of who God is. Is God, why would you you choose me, but why would you not choose this person? Uh, It doesn't make sense. It's not fair. And we can get very bogged down in that. And these last number of weeks studying through Ephesians with our young adults is chapter one, if you just want a real good exercise in, in difficult theology, is all about election. Is all about God choosing. Is God reaching down and choosing some, but not everyone? And how do we make peace with that? And so during those conversations, is one of our young adults uh, had just this really interesting thing to say. Is He said he had always heard about this, and they'd always read about this, but they never talked about it because it was just difficult, and they thought if they just didn't talk about it, they didn't have to deal with it. Anybody found that to be true in your life? The difficulties, we just if we don't talk about them, we pretend they're not there, they go away? I don't think that ever happens. I think sometimes we can pretend that they're not there, but eventually they come up. And in the same way, we started to really challenge uh, with this text in Ephesians. And so we, you don't ever really come to a complete conclusion on this, and I'll explain why in a minute. But we got to a place where, where we explained it as good as we could, went away for the week, we came back, and, and I asked the guys and the, and the girls, and I said, you know, how, how, has, your, how has your week been in, in context of thinking about election? And one of the guys looked at me and he said, uh... I forget his exact words, so I'm paraphrasing here a little bit. But he said, he said, well, I thought it was good until last week, and now I don't know what to do anymore. And we started to discuss that, and that's where, salva- that's where our salvation becomes real. Because it's not just something that we just blindly agree to, but we start to study, and we start to get to a place where we go, God, I don't, I don't understand this. Can you help me, and can you reveal to me some truth in this? So if you go back, think about it from the context of Genesis. God's created man and women, uh, and man has chosen sin over God's heart, and now all stand condemned before God, and God in his goodness and his graciousness and in his mercy reaches down to choose some. And as soon as we say the word some, we don't like it. But why is it unjust and why is it unfair for the Creator to choose? See, some of the reality here is that I can't explain to you why some people that I know have not come to faith in Jesus Christ and why others have. I can't explain that. But here's the reality of it, is if I'm going to serve a God, I'm going to serve a God that I can't fully understand. Because if I can fully understand him, I'm not serving him, I'm serving myself. When you read through Scripture, you find the story of Job, where Job goes to God, and he says, this isn't fair. Why have you done this? This doesn't make sense. And he demands answers, and all you get in the book of Job is you get a big rebuke from God, saying, who are you, and where were you when I created the world? And what you find is Job starts to change his tune, and eventually, he repents and confesses, and he says things like, I spoke of things too lofty for me to understand. But notice, he never gets the answer. He never is told why it happened or what even God was necessarily doing in that. Now, sometimes we do get a little bit of hindsight and we can see why we had to walk through some difficulties. But sometimes we don't. If God is truly God, then we have to come to a place where we can say, God is just and he's in fact the only one that is just. Because I'm not, I show favoritism i think those that i love more should be forgiven more than those that i don't love that sounds horrible but that's a real thing in our hearts is our family our friends that are very close to us uh, perhaps a child that's walked away from the lord is we desperately desire them to come to faith and we pray for them far more than we pray for other people And that's just because we're relational beings that have a relationship with some of those people. That's not a wrong thing to pray more for the ones that are in our family that don't know Christ. But what we have to realize is that God loves them more than we do. God created them and has knit them together. As we looked a couple of weeks ago in Psalm 139, God has has created them exactly the way he's intended to before they're even born. He has a depth of love for them that we will never know. And so what I do know is that it grieves God desperately when people reject him. First Peter is going to teach us in a, in a few weeks, and First Timothy teaches this as well, as that it's God's desire that all would come to repentance. He wants everyone to come to that place where they humble themselves before him and they come to faith in him. That's what God wants the most. And then we can argue and we can say, well, well, if that's what God wants the most, then why doesn't he just do it? Why doesn't he just take it? But at some point, we have to come under his authority and we have to say, God, you alone understand everything and I do not. And while right now here, this maybe makes sense to me and I can't make peace with some of these things, would you just help me to surrender my heart to you and realize that you are good and you are just? Peter has told us that the challenges and the difficulties and the obstacles that we're going to go through, they help to mature our faith. They have purpose and they have meaning, but sometimes it maybe doesn't feel like that. When we lose a loved one and we can say, God, how is this for my good? How is this going to cause me to grow in my faith? All this is seeming to do is make me upset and angry and, and all these things. And this is where we need to surround ourselves. So if you are, I'm going to say if you're under 65, you need to surround yourselves with people who are at the very edges of their life. Because there's so much wisdom in that. They have so much perspective. They can look back and and they can remember some of the hard times, but they they can see what God has done in that. And sometimes in my own life, I look back and I go, God, why have you done this yet? And I feel like God's just telling me, don't worry. It'll make sense one day. Maybe, maybe it won't even make sense here on this earth, but one day it'll make sense. All we can do is trust that God is just. And so when it says that some have stumbled to diso- and they've disobeyed the word as they were destined to do, is all I can do is look at that and go, God, thank you that you picked me up out of the rubble and that you have forgiven me and that you love me. Verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. So again, he's dealing with this idea of identity. Now, Kyle Edelman, in his study through this, he said this is what we do always flows out of who we are. What we do always flows out of who we are. And again, that goes countercultural to what culture teaching us. Rather, they teach us you do things, and so that makes you who you are. But what Scripture is going to teach, and I think Kyle Edelman's bang on in this, is that everything that we do, flows out of who we are. And so when we look at it and we go, I am a chosen race, a royal priesthood, I'm a holy nation, I'm a people bought for his own possession that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of this darkness into his marvelous light. Is everything that I do comes out of who I am? And I'm a child of God. Now, the hard part there as well is that I still have sin nature in me. And so I have a, a, a battle A war that's waging in my own heart but the more that i can submit to christ and submit to the power of the holy spirit in my life the more i'm going to do the things based out of who i am so this priesthood idea so matt chandler in, in one of his um teachings through this he actually takes this all the way back to genesis for this reason he says when god was creating you know he created the world and the various things in it every time he would say something what would he say it was good. So he created the moon and the stars. It was good. He created the animals. It was good. All these different things. But then he creates man, and he says what? But then what does he say? It is not good that man should be alone. And notice, sin hasn't entered the world yet. And yet God looks down at his creation, and and again, this is A little bit difficult to understand, but God being the Father, Son, and the Spirit lives and dwells in community as three beings in one, creates an isolated being, Adam, and says, no, 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 he needs to have community, I'm going to create Eve as well. So we are created to be in community. This is something that much of the rest of the world gets that North America doesn't, is community is essential to survival. But we live in a very individualistic time and an individualistic age where we do things based on what's right for us and how we want to do it and all these things. And the rest of the world looks at that and goes, that doesn't even make sense. Why would you do that? And the reason that that doesn't make sense is because God's created us to be together, working together for one mission, for one purpose. And so, when you think about it in this context, is is the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the individual? Is family is more important than individual? And so, when we read this idea that we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, he's not talking about one specific group of people. What he's trying to do is he's trying to take all peoples, all nations, all cultures, all races, and he's trying to say, look, I have bought you. For my good and for my glory and you are now under one family the family of Christ and so what a privilege and what a blessing that is the only problem is is that means that it's no longer about me but it's about my family that's a hard thing for us in North America to grasp it's not about me rather it's about my family in this Specific verse in verse nine, there are three Greek words that are used. Uh, typically, they're translated this way: one is genealogy, one is ethnic or ethnicity, and one is translated as laity or or layperson. And when you study through this, uh, I came across what John Piper said about this, and this is really interesting. He said Israel had laid claim on these three words. They would say, we are the people, we are the nation, and we are the race. But Peter comes, and he takes from Israel, and he says that now these words belong to those for whom Christ is now the cornerstone. And so what you find through Scripture, and specifically in Romans, talking about grafting in, is that God's original design, original intent, was not that only the Jewish nation would be saved. He had purpose for the Jewish people, and if you think that the Jewish people don't, or if you think that I think the Jewish people don't have purpose moving forward, just go back a few weeks into the summer, and there's a sermon online about that, and I do think they have that. However, what Romans 9 teaches us very clearly is that God's design right from the beginning is that all nations, every person, would have the opportunity to be saved. Now, he did that through the Jewish nation, and there were reasons for that, but what they were fighting with it. This time is they were going, Gentiles, Jews, we don't like the segregation. Are you allowed to be saved? Well, yes, but then you have to do some of these customs and what our traditions are. And, and Peter's trying to take it all down and to say all those things are pointless. What matters is Christ. We are all now the same royal priesthood. We are all a holy nation. We are all a people for his own possession. Why? So that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Is every single person's purpose in life. Again, if you ever wonder, what's God's will for my life? God's will is that you would be obedient to him and that you would declare his name to others. That's what our will is. That's what his will for us is. And so what Peter's trying to do is he's trying to break down any possible thing that could divide us and create in our own ideas of what it should be and he's saying you're all the same family under one God commentator Thomas Schreiner says it this way the church is a royal priesthood and God's holy nation as God's chosen ones Christians are to proclaim the excellencies of the one who summoned them from darkness and ushered them into his marvelous light and when we come to faith in Christ that becomes the most important realization of our entire lives that what peter's saying is everything else should become a distant second our race shouldn't matter our cultural upbringing shouldn't matter not that there aren't important things to celebrate in that there are and we need to several times a year we get opportunities to take smanga to various african pavilion things especially when we lived in winnipeg and we would always celebrate those things because we say, this is your heritage this is important but more important than that is that you're a child of God and that you have been adopted into God's family as his son. That should trump every other bit that is in our life. You may remember uh, some of you were here for an event we hosted with a, a friend of mine who's an illusionist in Calgary. And he's working on kind of a new program right now and he's going into people's houses uh, And filming these little documentaries, these really short ones, and he's going to different, he's going into houses that he doesn't know people, uh, he doesn't know the language they speak, he doesn't know the culture that they are, and he's just doing these little magic things and recording them. And, And his purpose in that is showing that there's actually more that we have shared than the differences. And yes, there's differences. Yes, we have different languages, different cultures, and I'm I'm not trying to suggest we need to become one nation that speaks one language and and that does everything the exact same way. I'm not trying to say that at all. But rather what I'm trying to say is that those things need not divide us. All they need to do is show us the uniquenesses of how God's created us. I've shared this story before, but when I was, I got an opportunity to be in Greece on a missions trip, and we were standing on Mars Hill, kind of looking down at the philosopher courts, and you're you're watching, uh, if you're at least from this part of the world, we don't really have a lot of history, and so when you're there, it just kind of really speaks loudly to you, and we were talking with this one guy, and he was talking about the beauty of everything in it, and my friend Benji looked at him, and he said, you know, the beauty that I see that God's created is the fact that we're all so diverse and unique and different. He chose to see his uniquenesses not as something that divides, but as something that shows the glory of God. But we can only do that when we love each other, despite whatever differences we may have. And that's what Peter is trying to tell us in his text. Once you were not a people, right? Obviously, we were all people. We obviously had nations. We obviously had cultures. But he's saying that was very limited. You didn't have Christ as the head. But now you do. What a blessing and what a wonderful thing that is. Then he finishes with this. But I urge you as sojourners and exiles, again, it goes back to abstain from the passions of the flesh. They wage war against our soul. When we give in to sin, sin becomes a little bit more acceptable to do. And when we start to struggle with certain sins and and instead of dealing with them and asking for help from people because we don't like to ask for help because we don't like people to see how vulnerable we are and yet that's what scripture is calling us to do. We are to carry one another's burdens. We are to help each other in our moments of need because we are created to be in community together. And so, as we go through those struggles, may we fight the sin that wages war against us because the more we can fight the sin, the more we can give in to the Holy Spirit. And the more we do that, the faster and the more mature we're going to grow. Then he says this keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak evil, uh, sorry, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. If that sounds familiar, Jesus said in Matthew 5 that we are to let our light shine, our good works shine, and then he says this, that they will praise your Father who is in heaven. Peter and Jesus are both saying the same thing here. People are going to speak evil against us. If you're a Christian, people are going to say that, that you... They're going to give you labels that we don't think are fair or just. What Peter's saying is let your conduct, let it be so honoring to God that people see it and they go, no, no, that person would never do that. He would never say that because this is who he or she is. This is how they've lived. That's what we're called to do, to live a life of integrity, but not for ourselves, but so that these people see it and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Peter's saying that Jesus is coming back, and if we can live lives that point to Jesus, we can win some people to Jesus by our conduct. Not because we're good, and not for the sake of us to have uh, a list of people that we can say, well, I saved this person, I saved this person, but rather so that the kingdom can grow and so that God can be exalted and God can be honored. That's what the text is teaching us. So my challenge for each of us as we go uh, from this place, as we go back to kind of normal, our normal routines, our normal lives, is this. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. You have been adopted into God's family. Your identity is not based in what you do for a living. Your identity is not based in what your talents are. Your identity is not based in any one of those things. Your identity is based on you are a child of God. And so let's live with that constant reminder not out of obligation but because we have been shown mercy because we have been shown grace because we were once without hope and now we do have a hope and a living hope let's pray God sometimes it can be so easy to get sucked into what the world thinks And we can start to place our own value and our own belief in ourself and our identity based on our jobs, our parenting, being a good spouse. And of course, all of those things are good, and all of those have their time and their purpose. But they all need to become second to you. And so God, when we think of who we are, may we remember that you are are our Father, that you love us desperately and that we are children of God. That our purpose is to glorify you, is to be obedient to what you have called us to do so that others see it and that they respond. God, thank you so much for your love for us. Even some of these difficult passages and specifically verse eight this morning, God. Help us not to get hung up and dwell on why we think something is not fair. But may we surrender to you, realizing that if you are the creator, then you alone know what's good and what's right and what's just. So help us to submit to you. Help all the areas of our life to flow out of who you are for us. God, would you give us opportunities even this week to share your love with somebody in word or deed? That we would be able to honor you in our actions. And God, as this war that wages battle in us between our sin nature and the Holy Spirit and this new creation that that has come upon us, God, would we surrender to the Holy Spirit? God, for those who are struggling this morning, for those who are having difficulty and challenge, God, I pray that they would turn to you and that they would turn to their fellow brothers and sisters, that they would realize that in community they can find help and they can be prayed for. God, help each one of us to be vulnerable. Help us to live in this beautiful royal priesthood of believers, the church. Thank you for it. Go with us this week, God. We love you. Amen.